Hey, what's up, dude? How's it going? Hey, hey, what's up? Have you been uh, checking out the progress of this AI-generated art stuff? I think it's gone off the rails since we last talked about using Dolly. Yeah, I saw there was a Twitter war on this. There was a comment section. I just read all of the angry comments and had a blast. What are people angry about? Is it artists think, who are like, this is the death of art? This yeah, is- I think it's like a mix of artists and people who generally just don't like like tech giants, etc. Hello, hello. Hello. How goes a couple? What's going on? Nice to see you both again. Nice to see you as well. We're talking about um, AI-generated art. Have you like seen Dolly 2 and uh, Stable Diffusion yeah. and all this stuff? I got yelled at um, back when I was working in AngelList because... Um, we were doing these like blog posts and I was like, you know, it's so silly. Like we, we like pay $500 to like have someone like do like an illustration. And actually there's like this art that we can just use and we should just use this because it's <laughs> licensing and all the designers got really, yeah. pissed, really pissed at me. It's so funny because it's like as a computer programmer, I'm like, oh, hell yeah, this is amazing. You know, I've had some experience as a designer, but I'm not an artist at heart. So the idea that somebody can type a prompt into a computer and generate an image from scratch doesn't really threaten me. It's just really exciting to me, to be honest. But apparently there was some art competition. I don't know if you guys read about this. But somewhere in the U.S., uh, this town was doing an art competition. And this guy used an AI to generate this very cool painting of these women dressed in Victoria-era clothing. But they're on like a spaceship in this cool sci-fi setting. (laughs) And he won first place over all the real artists who had actually painted something. And so people are pissed. And they're saying it shouldn't count. And it's not real art. And he's like, well, it's just a tool. But I think it's, it is real art. I think it really is just a tool. And he had to sit down and design all the prompts to get the AI to make this image and go back and edit the prompt and erase part of the image and do another prompt, et cetera, et cetera. So like, there was some artistry involved. At some point, the AI will start generating the prompts and, and then keep going to <laughs> level down. And you're like, oh, okay. All right. And then we're all slaves. So. And, then, and then we're all Slippery done. slope. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not personally threatened. Obviously, I'm not an artist. I'm not a painter. But I looked in the comment section, the angry comment section about this art competition. Everyone's freaking out and they're like, you know, what's going to happen next is there's going to be a writing competition where, you know, whatever CPT, whatever CP3, I don't remember the name of it. GPT3. GPT3 is going to win a writing competition. And instantly I felt like a heart palpitation because like I mostly fancy myself a writer. Because you're a writer, you're a fiction writer. Would that offend you if people started generating AIs that were creating fiction stories and writing that was indistinguishable from what like a professional fiction writer would write and was winning awards like would you feel no it definitely wouldn't offend me I feel like I'm a hybrid I'm like English major surrounded I grew up surrounded by artist people but then I got into tech I'm a coder and so I see everything as a tool and I'm just like oh what opportunity like what ways could I integrate my skills with like you know the efficiencies of a computer and then create something totally new on top of that but you've told me like plenty of times that when you're writing, like the thing that you like the most is the process of like having these challenges. Like, what am I going to do with this character? Where's the story going to go? And having these breakthroughs. And if you're like working and sweating and like staying up late or waking up early in the morning to do all this like hard work and someone else is just clicking a button and then their story is more popular and respected <laughs> than yours, do you not feel replaced? 
No, I mean, look, you, you're kind of saying it. There's two separate things that you could care about. One of them is the feeling that you get inside your body, right? And inside your brain, just from the love of creating art. And then the other one is the whatever, the respect, the prestige of having a really cool outcome, right? Like I'm not into writing because of status or money. But if you are into writing, uh, if you're a fiction writer, and then all of a sudden AI starts producing these stories where you're like, this is pretty good. Like, <laughs> and like it, it came through in five minutes this morning. It's like a full novel. It would be incredibly frustrating. I think it would too. Like one of my favorite things is anime. I love anime and I'm always frustrated that there's not enough good anime. Like most of the shows that come out are just not that good. And so in some alternate universe, I would probably open an anime studio and just try to like create more shows because I think there should be better shows. But if somebody came back from the future and said, hey, Cortland, you know, 10 years from now, there's going to be AIs that can generate entire anime shows. You just click a button, you tell it what kind of art style you like, what kind of stories interest you, what kind of humor you like, and it crunches some numbers for a few hours and spits out a show. Like, I would feel like that's amazing, and it would completely eliminate the need for me to create my own studio to try to, like, create more good content for the world. I feel that I'm not too worried about stories. I think that it can do a really good job of things that are ultimately derivative. But a really good story, I mean, I'm, I'm reading a biography of uh, Leo Tolstoy, and it's like he would write the story and then he would rewrite it 30 different times because he wanted it to be as organic and sort of unexpected as possible. And it's like without that iteration with a hu real human being, I don't know. But that's like what you can do. Be. Like there is iteration. And so like the guy who won this real art competition by using AI, it's not like he just did a prompt and then it, he went with the first one. He just kept giving it prompt after prompt after prompt, editing it, erasing parts of it, changing it over and over and over again. And even though he wasn't like, you know, a real artist with the skills to make this kind of painting, he did have like a fundamental role in that feedback loop. And I've done right. the same thing. Like the shirts that we designed for indie hackers that have like kind of the spaceman on it. Like that was me going to 99designs.com, hiring an artist, and then basically giving the artist prompts for what I want. And the artist would come up with a design and then I would reprompt the artist and they would change it a little bit over and over. So like, how is that any different? It's literally an well, identical process. So it's process not computer generation, it's human computer interaction, which is, which is still really interesting, but it's like you that is what this is. You just replace the artist with the computer. Well, it's an artist. It's almost like an artist and a computer. You could still say, "Oh, this part of the story sucks." Like, can you make can you make this scene a little bit softer, or make you know this character a little bit more ruthless? And if you can just keep iterating and then applying your own judgment, the computer doesn't have to be that smart. It just has to give you enough material that you can eventually say that one's good and move on. But I, I digress. We're here to talk about Koppel. <laughs> Koppel, welcome to the show. How are you? Happy to be here. I'm good. You are. Uh, your story is super inspirational. You are the founder, or one of the founders, of kind of two products. Um, the most recent one, Tremendous, does, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, eight figures in revenue. You don't share the specific amounts, but it's somewhere between $10 million and $99 million a year, and it's profitable. Yes, I, I can. There's nothing to correct there. And I think the, the two things that stand out to me the most here are that, number one, you and your co-founders, there's three of you, you kind of came back from the brink. Like, there was a point at which... Your company was basically like stagnant and almost dead. Like a lot of people would have just quit and that would have been the end of the story. And yet here you are with like a, you know, profitable eight-figure revenue company. And secondly, you and your co-founders own 100% of the company, but you didn't bootstrap. You had investors and then you, in an amazingly smart move, bought the company back from them and then grew it to millions of dollars in revenue, which is pretty cool. Um, the way that you make it sound was that we knew it was going to be this like uber monstrously profitable, great company. And we were like, hey, investors, we're going to 
guess what? You don't know this yet, and we're going to trick you and, and buy back the equity. But actually, at that point when we did it, we, we had no idea that the business would be um, what it became today. But it's probably worth me just like describing what it is that we do. Well, so, why don't I give it a shot? Because I'm curious right, what you're doing. Go for it, please. Uh, so you got two products. Gift Rocket was the first one. Then it sort of pivoted and became tremendous. Gift Rocket, also a cool business in its own right. I think you guys grew it to like almost $400,000 in revenue. Uh if I try to describe it, I would say it's basically it was some sort of a digital gift card. So let's say somebody wanted to give me a gift. It's my birthday. They would sign into Gift Rocket, give you guys my email address, pick a store like Target or something or a restaurant, and, you know, buy a hundred dollar gift rocket. Then I would get an email that's like, oh, you know, your friend Jonathan gave you a hundred dollars. And then I would have to go to that Target and like press a button and you would check my location and then it would like unlock the money and I could spend it there. Is that how far off? Yeah, that that was actually the original idea. Is it was um, this was back in 2010 when we came up with it, which was like the heyday of Foursquare and uh, Gowalla at the time. For those of us who've been in the industry for uh, a really long time, but the idea was instead of like actually giving you a gift card, like you would get money that you would have to go to a specific location, you'd have to check in in order to get it. And that was the original variant of it, though, you know, we went through YC and eventually what we ended up doing was actually making it just like a much more flexible version of a gift card where it was um, like, think about it like paperless post combined with Venmo. It was money with a nice suggestion of how to spend it um, and really low friction and easy for someone to just sort of get. It was a great wedding gift, for example. That's what I right. used for all my all the wedding gifts I, I sent over the last 10 years. I'm actually curious about even before Gift Rocket, I'm curious about about you. Like, where'd you grow up? Were you, are you from the States? Uh, so I was born in India um, and came to the U.S. when I was four years old. Both my parents are, um, back then they were uh, engineers, mechanical and electrical engineering is what they studied. And that's what they went to grad school for. And eventually they actually became um, computer scientists and nice. uh, taught themselves how to code. Um, my dad took a master's program in computer science where he had no undergraduate qualifications for it and just like sort of talked his way into the program. Um, and then he helped my mom uh, learn how to code and they are still sort of engineers, um, software engineers to this day. They actually tried to talk me out of becoming a software engineer because I took some AP classes in it in high school. And look, growing up on the West Coast, like you see like computer science is this thing where like all these brilliant computer scientists are creating the companies of like the future, but on the East coast, it's more of like the office space notion yep. of um, programmers where you're kind of like the person who's doing the back office work. And, uh, you know, for my parents, they were like, well, we want something more for you. And they didn't really know the West coast world. Um, so they actually tried to talk me out of that and into becoming a business person. And eventually I guess I became a hybrid of those two things. At what point did you like? Did you have like a crossroads where you had to decide: Am I gonna do what my parents want and be a business person? Am I gonna do what I want, be a software engineer? Like, when did you decide to basically start companies? Ooh, good question. I think I like wanted. I knew I wanted to start a company like in eighth grade or ninth grade. I like read some business book my dad had lying around, and I was like, "This seems so cool." And it's probably not a very good business book. I've <laughs> gone back and reread it. Um, but, you know, after college, I got a job at a consulting firm, which is what you do when you got good grades and didn't know what your next job was um, or next thing was. And uh, that was pretty good for a few years. And then I, I just knew I was like bored there. Uh, and at that point, um, Nick, my uh, co-founder and the CEO of Tremendous, um, he and I had been kicking around ideas for startups and we we're like, let's do it. 
And we didn't really know what we were going to work on at the time, but we both quit our jobs and, and moved to Berkeley, where we eventually ended up founding Gift Rocket. So you quit before you had anything. Yeah, it's not like I, I actually don't recommend this to most people. <laughs> like it's like a burn the boat strategy. But we knew that we had enough like money saved up for both of us from like our jobs. Nick was working in finance before that we had at least a year of runway. And um, we also saw two of our friends from college who um, had now like they're the founders of SeatGeek had done something similar where a couple years in, they like kind of left their jobs and were like, we're going to run through a bunch of ideas and just build stuff because this is more interesting than like working our corporate jobs. And, you know, I, I actually think for us at that stage in life, like that was a pretty good formula. It's interesting to me, like who, what kinds of people take that leap? Because for me, like that was also an easy leap to take. I graduated from college. I had very little money. I guess I had worked like an internship, but it was enough that I could go to San Francisco and survive for a few months. And my plan was like, I hope I get into Y Combinator, which I actually did the exact same batch that you did. But I had a lot of friends who like also like were successful in college. And for them, it was like the idea of not kind of sticking on the rails and going to get a high paying job was terrifying. It seemed like a huge kind of waste. And if I look back, like I don't think I was especially smart or even like risk taking. I was just kind of like reckless. What what was going on with you? I I don't know. It was the same thing, I guess, because I remember thinking that, yeah, why wouldn't we? We're like young and don't have like families. And this sounds like it's going to be an interesting adventure, at least. And optimizing for that and like taking risk was like, that was super exciting. And we didn't like, it's not like we loved our jobs or anything. So this all seemed totally reasonable. And yet when I ask other people from that era who were around me about it, they're like, you're <laughs> crazy. Like you're out of your mind. Like, isn't that so risky? I'm like, I mean, what's the worst thing that happens? Like go to business school or like, that's it wasn't fine. a thing back then. Like it just, it just wasn't that popular to start startups or do your own. Like nowadays, like every Gen Z or like their number one, I think their number one most desired profession is like a YouTuber. It's like common knowledge that you can go on the internet and basically work for yourself and build an audience or build a product and make money. But in what was this like 2010, 2011, yeah. when you started Gift Rocket, like that wasn't, nobody was doing this. It was like did a very underground have, cult. Did, did you have like role models or, or like people who were like maybe older than you or just like slightly ahead of you somewhere in life where, who had done this? Not really, dude. I was like probably the same as you. I was like reading like Paul Graham's articles on his blog. And I was like, this sounds crazy. And like from the time I was like a kid, I was and like I loved Bill Gates. I thought Bill Gates was cool. But the vast majority of my friends at MIT were not computer programmers. They had no idea what I was talking about. They would ask me questions like, why do you think you can do this? And like, I didn't have a ready answer. I was just like, this seems way more fun than anything else. Yeah, you know, that is crazy. If like your role models are people who you've never spoken to or like essays on the internet that you've read and then you decide to move to San Francisco and really <laughs> go for it. Yeah, that's a level of risk that I think is like past what I, I took. You know, for me, I had a co-founder who was like, you know, my like back then I went to Dartmouth and out of the CS program, there was like 15 kids in there and uh, Nick was one of the top students. And so to have someone who actually knew how to code, I didn't know how to code at that point except from like my high school programming classes. To have someone that wanted to do that with you was like, okay, no brainer already. And then to like, you know, we we stayed at his dad's house in Berkeley to have a place to do it that was like close to, you know, San Francisco was a, it was a big deal. Like it, things felt like they were actually set up reasonably well. So I'm looking at the the stats for the gift card industry. I just Googled it and I found a quote. I don't know how true this is, but it says the global gift cards market size is valued at $620 billion in 2019. And it's projected to reach 
basically $2 trillion by 2027, growing annually basically at a rate of 16%, which means like, hey, this is a huge market. And also, it's also a market that's growing, which is kind of like a, a neat hack for having a company that grows. It's like you just build inside of a market that's growing. Wish somebody would have told me that uh, 10 years ago. Uh, how did you guys decide to work on GiftRocket? Okay, I remember it was August when we, um, August of 2010, when we started working on ideas and we didn't really do anything for the first month. It was like decompressing from our jobs. Uh, and, and we started kicking around ideas. And actually, the one that we applied to YC with, if you remember, like the YC application deadline was like October, was this like referral marketing idea where like if you referred a restaurant to a friend, you would get like a sort of discount and it was going to work through credit cards. And it was a really bad idea. Um, and we actually pitched it to YC in our application there. I think Paul Graham, actually, it, this was back in um, on Hacker News. There used to be a functionality where you would apply through Hacker News mm -hmm. and then PG could message you. And he messaged us like, <laughs> like something like, you guys seem like you're smart. Why are you working on this terrible idea? <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, you know, I'd only read his essays at that point. And this was like, we just applied and we're like, uh, like, it seemed like a good idea to us. And so what ended up happening was he accepted us for an interview for this bad referrals idea. And like maybe three days before the interview, um, Nick and I were probably late at night, like uh, at Kitchen Island, just like shooting the shit. And I think he came up with the idea for like a gift card that was just like check-in based. And we were like, oh, that's a good idea. And I, I don't remember whether the name had come. I think I think he did come up with the name pretty early to Nick's credit. We were like, okay, well, let's just pitch this because like that other idea, they already think it's bad. Um, and we went in and pitched the idea for Gift Rocket to um, the YC team, which was like Paul, Jessica, Paul Buchheit, and I think Harge at the time. And Paul Graham, I remember in this interview, like freaked out. He was like, this is like Twitter. This is like the best idea that we've heard in so long. It's like undiscovered. It's just waiting to be discovered. I can't believe no one else has pitched us on it. And we're like, you know, interviews 10 minutes. We're like, oh, like we definitely got this. And, then, and <laughs> Nailed like, it. We were celebrating. And here's the crazy part. The next, that night, I think we got a rejection notice. Uh, and they're oh, like, well, shit. you haven't thought about like this enough. Like you just came up with this idea two days ago. Like I think they got fired. <laughs> um, and, you know, Nick and I immediately went out and like, I think, um, drank some cocktails and started watching the Jersey Shores. Like that was how we would decompress at the time. And actually what happened was uh, three days later, they changed their mind and they were like, you know what? We were probably being too harsh. Wow. We'll figure it out. Like we'd like to let you into the program. Just out of the blue. You didn't like campaign in your defense. Like, oh, please change your mind. There was no campaign. And actually, the thing that they said to us was, you haven't thought about payments fraud enough. And I think what had happened mm. somewhere in the background mm. was um, they were on the fence about us. And PG spoke to one of the folks at Stripe. It was probably Patrick at the time. Uh, and, and Patrick was like, these guys have no idea what they're doing, which is true. <laughs> we actually had no idea what we were doing. Afterwards, PG changed his mind and actually set us up with yeah. all the folks in YC who were working on payments. And this was like a huge boost to two kids who had no idea what they were doing to like be connected to Stripe and WePay. And that was how we got our start. How's it feel in hindsight to have been like connected to all these people who are now like legends? Because like yeah, in 2008, far, far, far nobody, more successful. Yeah, no one, no one knew who Patrick Collison was back then. And you know, and the intervening years, it's like, oh, one of the youngest billionaires on earth, founder of Stripe. Did anything like stand out to you about any of these people that you were meeting and getting connected to? Did it seem like they were going to become what they became? 
No, I mean, I, I had no idea for any of the people that we were around. Like, I even remember Gary Tan, who's now the president of YC. Yeah. Um, like, Gary was an advisor to our batch. He was, like, looking at landing pages that we were putting together. for. The yeah. Project. And we're like, this looks like uh, you could probably change. Like, he was telling he's pixel pushing with me um, 12 years ago. Same so year. It, it was like back, he was, he was like a design advisor mm-hmm. in a sense. So I think back then we knew that we were surrounded by smart people in a special place. Like YC in 2010, I do think was like, it, it felt in some ways like the center of the tech universe. And I'm just grateful to have been part of that program back then. Yeah. Well, and you were part of the same, the same batch, right? Did you, yeah. you know, did you get the sense that you were surrounded by any current or future legends at the time? No, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't really tell. Cause I also, for example, was advised by Gary Tan. You would go into office hours and you would have like the people who were sort of assigned to your company and they would like look at your website, look at your strategy and talk to you. And I had Gary Tan... Uh, and Paul Buhite, who invented Gmail. And I remember Gary Tan looking at our designs and saying, oh, this is awesome, this is crap, you should change that. And it's like, today is a totally different reputation. But I also like took the opposite approach that you did, Koppel, because I had been rejected from YC before. And I tried arguing to get into it. <laughs> so I have an email I just pulled up from October 2008 from Paul Graham to me and my co-founder. I was, I got had to be like 21 at the time, and I was still in college. And he's like, hey, since you guys are both a semester short of graduating, why don't you just apply in six months for the summer batch, like, what's the rush? And I remember we got that email. We were so excited because it sounded like he liked what we were doing, and that was his only reservation. So me and my co-founder, like, huddled, and we, like, tried to figure out what we were going to say. You know, we were both like, oh, we're just so excited about this idea. You know, we can delay our graduation. And then he said, take my word for it. It's better to graduate first. Otherwise, it's very tempting to return to school during the lean period that inevitably happens about six months in. Plus, you'll have more time to work on your idea. And then he just rejected us. <laughs> so arguing back didn't actually work. But Cobble, you Paul got Graham is such a tease. That's what I'm gaining from all of these stories. Well, for him, he yeah. was just like rubber stamping, like this person's in, <laughs> this person's out. But for all of us, it was like, this is my life dream to do this. It was like such a big deal to get in or not. So let's talk about uh, your experience with the earliest stages of Gift Rocket. So you eventually come up with this idea. You had a team. It was you and Nick. Did you have a third co-founder? We did. Um, after we got into YC, we convinced... Nick's like elementary school friend, Jonathan, who um, was in a PhD program um, for computer science to drop out. And it, it actually worked partially because like the YC stamp of approval and there was like, you know, there's something going on with what we were doing. And Jonathan was like, okay, I was bored at this program anyway. Um, and he uh, joined us and he actually added the most credibility to our team because he'd worked at Facebook before. Um, you know, at that point, we had a sort of interesting, well-rounded team. We just had to figure out what to build. I mean, I don't remember what your time during YC was like. I mean, I spent, like, we spent all of it just building stuff. And I was actually designing interfaces at the time. Yeah, it was such, like, a, a competitive environment. Like, because essentially the structure of the batch is, like, you know, I guess our batch is probably, like, 40 companies all together meeting every Monday and every week you would see what everybody else had built. And then we would like vote like who's going to be the best. And you could talk to everybody. Like remember Chris Chen? He was always like pivoting with his ideas and doing crazy stuff. He's doing, he did like a music startup, I think. And then there were the like little like guys. FM. Yeah, That's like right. FM. Then there were the like little guys who like raised a bunch of money in the very beginning. It was like this very competitive landscape. So it's like I guess we were all super motivated to build as fast as we possibly could. Like every single like social accountability and like your pride and like your bank account because we didn't get that much money in the beginning. Like every single factor is pointing towards like build as fast as you possibly can. Yeah, I think it's actually what everyone needed at the time. 
I don't know if it was healthy though, because at least for me, I'm like an extremely competitive person and you put me in like that situation where, you know, like there's a bunch of us on treadmills, like I'm going to crank my speed up on the treadmill pretty high and, and like, look at how fast everyone else is running. And, you know, like that's, I think something I've had to work on because the reality is everyone is like running their own race and like the products, like whatever hill they're choosing to climb of like the product that they're trying to build is like, well, building it faster is not necessarily the solution. Maybe you need to take a step back and be like, does any of this make sense? Um, I don't know if YC was great for that aspect, but it did get us to get stuff out pretty quickly. Cortland, I just recommended that book, The Status Game, to you, right? Yeah, it actually reminds me of this yeah. a lot. Yeah, so a couple I just recommended this amazing book. It's by this guy, Will Store, about status games. It's just, it's basically like, you know, hey, makes it the case that, um, I mean, basically all humans all the time are constantly being run by this this status machinery. We're all kind of playing these games, kind of deep below the motivational layers that we're consciously aware of. There's like three status games that that book talks about. Like I'm still reading it, but it's like, okay, there's the dominant game. And so uh, this is just like, I'm bigger and stronger than you. I'm louder and more confident. And so listen to me. Uh, then you've got the virtue status game, which is like, I'm a more pure or more moral person than you and shame on you. And that's the sort of way that you can kind of stand out. Um, you know, I've meditated longer than you. I'm a more enlightened person than you. And then you've got the success status game, which is definitely what Y Combinator was. It was like, who is the most successful? And whoever is the most successful, everybody wants to emulate them. Everybody wants to kiss up to them. Everybody wants to be like them or surpass them. And other people who are successful, you're like, you don't want to let them, let them down, right? You don't want to embarrass yourself in a meeting with Paul Graham or Paul Buhite or Gary Tan. And so, like, a lot of that was at work. I don't know how much the first two were at work. I'm assuming the premise of the book is like, we're really hardwired on this stuff. And YC was smart to use that because, you know, their goal is to make this batch as sort of successful and productive as possible. Right. And basically polished turds. I mean, like you have me and Cortland and, and YC not really knowing anything about what we're doing. No clue. Um, and, and they're trying to put us in front of investors pretty quickly. It does. I, I think it does have a really positive impact for like a short term outcome. The problem was a few things. The first is that the measuring of how you figured out who was like doing well and who wasn't was like a voting scheme that happened of like who was going to be successful like at the end of every batch, which is like very, you know, reality TV kind of based. It's literally a popularity contest. Exactly. Wait, are you serious? Second. I didn't know about that. Yeah, we oh, all yeah. vote. What is, is the most likely to succeed? I can't remember exactly. How did it work? I, I think you wrote something down on a piece of paper and put it into like a basket. It yeah. was how did they, cool. how did the, wait a second. How did they explain the the usefulness of this? <laughs> I can't even remember, but I know it happened. It's like, you, you had to be like, what comp, what team is like most likely to be successful after demo yeah. day? And that was something you voted on. We were, I was never anywhere near the top of that list, but it wasn't demotivating. Yeah. Like there's never a point where I was like, oh, we're not near. It was just like, oh, we need to get better. Right. You just like want to be better. The, the second thing that we were measured by was like, how much did you raise and who did you raise from? And obviously, here we are on Indie Hackers uh, talking about there's actually a lot of different routes to like, you know, being successful for whatever your measure of that is. But, yeah. you know, in the YC environment, there's so many good things that came out of it. Um, the other thing I will say is that I don't actually, I think like the forces that be of like putting all these people together and having like um, demo day happen at the end of it leads you to this. But simultaneously, like when we like post YC, when we started running into like traction problems, like Paul Graham was like, 
you guys shouldn't try to raise any more money. Like, why don't you go like figure some stuff out and make sure you really have product market fit, which is actually quite contrary to like the advice that you get now, which is like right. raise as much money as you can, like war chest. Like if it's out there, take it in. Yeah. Was very so he, did, he didn't quite have like a, a vote on who's growing the most, growing the revenue the most, but he did send you a private memo at the end of YC to <laughs> give you, give you a hint that maybe you should work on, on product market fit. Yeah, we were like, here's, he was like, what, what are your, I remember this email. It's like, what are your traction numbers? Uh, he emailed, you know, the founders and we replied like, here's how many of these we've sold per week. And it was like, you know, double digits, I think. And he's like, oh, you're in the trough of sorrow. Just <laughs> um, like, oh, okay. I guess that's where we are. It's like, you, you guys should probably figure out how to grow. Here's some people you should talk to. Who maybe if you weren't you. before, you definitely felt sorrowful after program right. literally tells you. I was pretty happy before this call. If <laughs> he tells you, you should feel sorrowful. But you guys actually grew it a lot. I mean, GiftRocket got to about $400,000 a year in revenue, which is awesome for a small group of founders. You just basically created your own sort of salaries out of thin air. Um, why wasn't that good? You know, what was bad about that outcome? There's nothing bad about the outcome. But if you wanted to create like a growing business, then one of the fundamentals you need is like you can't have crazy amounts of churn out the other end. And given the way that the product worked, we were like, you know, trying to get in consumers to like send to their friends. Um, they would find us sometimes like through search or like, you know, we actually ranked pretty well for online gift cards at some point. I think we were number one back in 2012. So they would find us, but then they wouldn't repeat use the product because it was a product for occasional use. It was literally for occasions like weddings and holidays. So we would see spikes, but like retention rates were so low that it was like, okay, well, maybe this grows like a little bit, but this in itself is not like a, a big venture pack business. And we had some serious talks. This is around 2012 or 2013 that we realized this. We were like, are we climbing the right hill? Like, is this, like, we keep working on this exact product. It feels like we're hitting a ceiling and this idea is like probably going to be somewhat uh, tapped out. Like we had other variations of it, but they all felt like they were still going to succumb to the same problem, which is that if you were targeting consumers with a gifting product idea, like how are you going to get them to send all of their gifts through you? That's That didn't seem feasible. And then even, even if they send all their gifts through you, I mean, I send four gifts a year on really charitable years. So what other axes, what, what other levers can you pull? Well, how much money are you making? Like if someone's using you four times a year, which I assume it was probably less, but like, I don't know, like Father's Day, Mother's Day, somebody's birthday, another person's birthday, Christmas, et cetera. Like how much are you making per customer when they're sending a $100 gift rocket? Just, just not that much. Like the fees up front are like, you know, we charge something and we had like discounts on them. And, and, but the reality is I think the repeat rates were so low that even like, we didn't think that that was possible. Like, I think it was like, if you sent one year, your chances of sending again, like later that year, like within the next year, were like 5% or something like that. Damn. And it would drop off over time. So it was like, okay, we've like created this utility that is like good every once in a while, but it's not going to be like, a, it's a replacement for some existing gifting behavior you have. Like, plus you want to vary it up. You're not going to send everyone like gift cards or like gift certificates. You're going to want to send like a physical thing to someone. And so there were a bunch of startups that um, launched around the gifting space back in the early 2010s. Like um, Karma was one of them. There's another called Thinkful and they all ended up failing. Um, actually Karma ended up getting acquired by Facebook for like $75 million, which arguably is probably a bad decision by Facebook. Okay, so this went on for a while, right? You kind of hung out in this trough of sorrow, if we want to call it that, of sort of a situation with low retention. But eventually, 
you know, you moved forward and you decided this you know, sort of crazy idea to buy out your investors. So what happened there? Yeah, we were like, okay, well, we're making like, you know, sizable, like reasonable money, but this isn't going to grow. And I don't know what the exit for this is. And investors like want to have their money like back in seven years. We're like, this is not really going to happen. So we offered to buy people out with the cash flow. Um, and we said everyone can get pretty much double their money back. And I think YC got a pretty like even, even better return. And they all agreed to it. Um, so there's just like, you get your this much money back now. And then within two years, you get this much more. And everyone was happy. So we, we signed the papers. It was really straightforward negotiation. There was no negotiation. They were like all like, wow, that's nice of you. So we raised from like pretty good people. That was it. I think the standard sort of outcome for the vast majority of YC companies was like, you die. So the idea that for an investor is like, oh, you're going to get your money back. Um, hey, like at least they didn't completely die is like probably a good deal for most of them. Although I'm sure there's like, you know, frequently some investors out there who are like, no, you need to push yourself and become a unicorn. I don't care. Uh, I don't want my money back. Yeah, there was one that thought we were like operating in bad faith and we were like, okay. They were like, fine. Um, but ultimately, like, you know, I don't think the investors cared. I think they thought that was generous of us for the most part. But like, you know, no one's buying us steak dinners or something like after we gave them a return. <laughs> All right, it's not so, a cause for celebration for anyone. <laughs> so you, you've now started a company, grown into hundreds of thousands of revenue with your co-founders, decided that it's not a great idea, bought out your investors. Uh, and then I think like, all of you guys went to work other jobs. How do you decide like, what to do in that sort of crossroads period? Because I think that you know, my sort of philosophy is that most intelligent, ambitious people, like if you just keep starting companies, like eventually you have a company that works. You'll learn a lot of lessons. Maybe that number is like nine companies for someone. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's 15. Who knows? But like you started Gift Rocket at this point and it kind of sort of worked. How did you decide what to do with your life? Yeah, I knew I wanted to start another company and I think Nick was still rearing to go. So the two of us were like starting to explore other things that we could do. Um, Jonathan at that point wanted to take some time off and he ended up um, doing that and eventually um, becoming an investor. Uh, and Nick and I ended up starting a couple of real estate companies, actually, for two years. And fun fact, I think I was like the top uh, seller of like single family homes in like the East Bay for one of these real estate ideas for like a summer in 2014, where I think I sold like nine, like I, I was technically <laughs> the real estate agent, I sold like nine homes. Um, but this was an idea called American Realties that Nick and I actually started along with uh, Sandy Spicer, who was also in our I remember batch. Sandy. Yep. Look, we, we were three engineers at that point, and real estate is a miserable business. And so we ended up like in 2014, just shutting it down. Um, Sandy went over to Flexport. Um, and I was like, actually working on yet another idea. But then I was like, you know, after four years of like, I was like, I suck as an entrepreneur, none of this is working, I should get a job. And um, that's what I ended up doing. I, I took an engineering job at AngelList as like employee number 20 or something. And Nick, uh, at that point was like, the last founder who could possibly work on Gift Rocket, and there was some stuff to do there. So he actually went back to to go work on that. He didn't want to get a job. So was Gift Rocket like continuing to spit out cash while you guys were all doing like it was at like 400k in revenue? You guys kind of quit to do other things. Was it still operating in the background? Yeah, I think it actually grew a, a sizable amount. So it was a what was weird about us, like all, all the founders sort of pausing working on the business, was we actually did have one employee running operations, and we were like. 
that was a weird conversation of like we had quit his commercial real estate job to like be our community manager that's what we had titled it and he um we were like hey everyone's quitting and we're gonna work work on new ideas and he's like what (laughs) all my bosses are quitting (laughs) and he he ended up doing fine he um became a engineer and then a startup founder just stole his startup actually um, and I, another friend of mine ended up taking like the core operations role. But during this time, there's just one employee working on the operations of the site and things were growing. Like at what point in time did you eventually transition to, you know, this oh, is, this a is real something thing. that we can, yeah, this is a real thing. We should really go all in on this again. So the thing that initially pulled Nick in was that, you know, we're a payments business and the bank that we were built on top of, which at the time in 2014, a lot of startups were built on top of, which is Bank Four Oaks Bank um, had had to shut down all of their like fintech programs. And this affected a lot of companies, including Angelus, where that was what I ended up working on. That was the first project I, I did when I was there um, is transitioning all of like our banking code um, over. And Nick was the only founder left at uh, Gift Rocket. So he ended up doing that by himself is like negotiating another deal with a bank, rewriting all of like the code that interfaces with the banks like work. And um, that was like a pretty big six to nine month project. And that was the thing that pulled them back in. And at that point, you know, you've got your anchor project and you're back in for him. That's when he started seeing the potential um, in this B2C market, because you look at, you know, we, we had this retention problem and you just do like the SQL query of like, well, who's actually sending over and over again? And what we found was that, well, there were a bunch of accounts that had signed up that were businesses that were starting to, that were using Gift Rocket for the same use cases that we, that Tremendous now serves, which is like research incentives or like a referral incentive or something like that. And because we were grouping by these users, we realized that there was no retention problem here. Because these businesses needed to send these like gift cards out as part of their line of business. And that was the first insight that led Nick to um, transition the company that we had built over to being a business-to-consumer payouts company. Yeah, there's this idea of like the pivot. You know, you just start a company and maybe it doesn't go well, but you know, you keep working on it and eventually you have this flash of insight, this realization, and you pivot into something that works. And... And my experience is pretty rarely a curse. It's not nearly as common an occurrence as like it's talked about or used to be talked about, but like that's what happened here. Tremendous ended up being, again, a business that's doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue. It's profitable. It's owned by the founders. But at this point, like you, hadn't, you didn't have really much of anything. Like Nick had a, like a little bit of inspiration. He thought this was cool, but you were off doing other things. Your other co-founder was off doing other things. Like what's the first thing that happened to sort of turn the ship around after Nick decided, hey, there might be some promise here? So start actually exploring this market. And there are two things that I believe simultaneously happen. The first was we start, you know, you talk about the YC philosophy of doing things. First thing you do is talk to your users. And Nick started reaching out to um, market research firms, which ended up, you know, now are part of our bread and butter. They send out like market research firms do research for on behalf of Fortune 500s about new products that they may launch. Um, and they are constantly surveying people or bringing in focus groups, and they have to compensate these people for their time and input. And the nature of the market research industry is like, there are so many small firms out there that all have this need for an incentives provider. And some of them had started using gift rockets. We just started talking to them, realized that there was some unfulfilled need here. And 
the first thing I, I think he did was he created something. It was Gift Rocket Rewards is like what, what we called it. Um, that, that eventually became tremendous. But that building that out, and it was actually a fork of the original Gift Rocket code base. Building that out plus like doing the customer development and sales, which is like honestly outreach on LinkedIn at the time, led to closing a couple multi-million dollar deals. And it was like, oh shit. Multi-million dollars as in like, that's kind of the amount of money multi- flowing through Gift Rocket or the amount of revenue you guys got to pocket? Multiple millions of dollars of payments volume, which for some of the larger deals that we've closed, like some of the early deals we closed are like now spending like $9 million on the platform. And that ends right. up being pretty sizable margins for us. You're at um, you're at Angelus at the time, right? So, yeah, and I'm sitting there at Angelus, being like, "What's going on?" <laughs> so, so is, is he keeping you? Is he keeping you updated like throughout this entire process, or does he phone you up after he's closed two yeah. multi-million dollar deals and like, yeah. "Hey, Koppel, you never believe this." Like, how did that go down? Yeah, I don't know. What you, you know the funny like for you to quit and come the, back. The funny thing was, like, I was like, "Oh, this seems like an interesting thread to pull on," not realizing I'm not actually in the business talking to these people, so I don't know how well it's working. And honestly, the initial sort of, there was just some skepticism around like, well, this is like a different business. Like, is this actually going to work? It it wasn't just me. It was like other people that, you know, we were friends with in the startup community being like, uh, and, and it just took two years of pulling on the strings, uh, pulling on that thread to realize, okay, actually this is like a gigantic underserved vertical and payouts is like payouts and like, B2C gift cards is actually this big, gigantic thing that we just didn't understand very well before. So I'm like kind of, you know, an angelist. I, I was a software engineer to start out. And eventually I became the COO of like uh, the job site, the talent business. Which is a and huge I, part well, of angelist. So like you're basically kind of set. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I have this like career that's like really burgeoning. <laughs> yeah, I've like awesome. never had a real job in tech. <laughs> and like, you know, I'm like now uh, an executive at this like hot startup and and simultaneously just like advising nick on the side and i'd become a manager you know the talent business had become like 80 people or something like that and so tremendous to me as it was getting built was like kind of just this thing that i was helping nick with on the side um rather than being like something that was occupying a lot of my time so you know in in this pivot all credit goes to nick Ben, who is a, a friend of ours, who basically came on as a late co-founder, a um, friend of ours from college who like helped transition the company over. Um, and some of the early employees, um, where it's like three, it's like a five-person, four-person team. Your website talks about you guys being in hyper-growth mode. So like you're like, and some aspects are bootstrapped at this point, like the founders own 100% of the company. And like, I think the traditional indie hacker route is like, okay, well now you just make a lot of money and then you pay yourself a high salary and like, that's it. That's the dream. You built a business. But there's also the sort of stereotypical hyper growth Silicon Valley startup path. Where you're like, no, I'm not happy with that. I'm trying to take over the world and be a unicorn company worth billions of dollars. And it seems like you guys are still on that trajectory. You're still trying to go that route, despite the fact that you don't have high growth investors. So, and that, it's not that uncommon. GitHub is a good example. They didn't raise until years after they were founded and they were acquired for billions of dollars. Zapier, we've interviewed Wade Foster on the show. They raised a tiny amount of money and then just basically bootstrapped the rest and then later on raised money like a $5 billion valuation. So why not just stay indie hackers? Like why do you want to go for this uh, sort of huge valuation and grow super fast? I don't think we're, we're targeting the valuation um, 
like the, whatever, like that, that's some like measuring stick. I think it's really about delivering value to users. And the reason we say we're in hyper growth is because there's two aspects of the company that just keep doubling every year. And maybe, maybe faster than that. The first is like the number of customers and accounts that we have. And all of that comes with complexity of like, you know, we have 5,000 businesses that are using our product or have used our product to, to send payouts, which is like a really large number. Um, and, uh, you know, transaction volume is like well into the hundreds of millions right now, or like the number of use cases is proliferating. And so the complexity of the business is going up. Um, but along with that, like, you know, I rejoined Tremendous. Nick had recruiting me, recruited me back in 2020. Um, and I think the team was like eight or nine full-time employees at the time. And now, you know, within two years, we're at like 55 and I think we'll be 75 or so by the end of the year. And that doubling of the team size, like um, maybe every every year or even faster than that also comes with like this feeling of wow things are not just like this it's not some like incremental change it's like a different company every year and so the hyper growth thing refers to the fact that you know every 9 months it feels like a different company and that's not driven by we're pulling in this VC money and have to spend it. It's driven by the product market fit that we have. We're solving problems for our users and they keep telling their friends about the product and those people sign up and we have to like we, we say, I have to say no to business or sometimes we have to say no to business. Like that's how, you know, what do you, what do you know about this industry, the gift industry that other people don't know? I mean, to take one example, you, at least you started out pulling on the thread of these research companies or research teams at companies. I mean, is, is the market bigger than that? Or are you kind of pulling on different threads? Like what? I think the thing that people don't understand about this industry is the role that gift cards play in it. And they think about us as this gift card startup and they tie that to like, oh, I send my friends gift cards. But gift cards are actually this like incredibly low friction way to transfer value from one person to another without having to like go through your payroll system. Like you can buy an Amazon card and trade them around. And that's the reason that they're valuable to market research firms is, well, if they have to send people like research incentives all over the world, well, like some gift cards are kind of like one form of tender that allows them to do that in a low friction way. Now, one of the other things that I think we got right pretty early on is we're not really just a gift card company. We started out as like this gifting startup, but it's really about low friction payouts. If you want to be able to transfer value to like some large number of people on a one-off basis, like, can you imagine going into payroll software and being like, let me upload us. Like, it's going to ask for everyone's social security number and they're going to be like, no. Um, but simultaneously, there's a threshold of like you transfer more value than $600 to someone in the US and then you actually have to collect a W-9 form and like share that with your CFO or your finance person. And all of this stuff, like approaching payments from like, well, you start with the low friction side of like small amounts and build up leads you to all these other use cases that you never thought of. And every time we looked at a uh, vertical we re- or like a department within a company, we realized that there are lots of use cases for this. So research is obviously a big one. Um, and then you think about conversion rate optimization of like marketers, like wanting to like make sure people actually book demos or, um, you know, outreach campaigns where like you offer an incentive to like take a conversation with someone and HR, like you think about employee recognition of like wanting to send out gifts to your employees or even like sales bonuses, like those are a huge pain to pay out at the end of the month. Like these low friction transfers are like, as diverse as the payments ecosystem itself. And you're just not seeing it because they're hidden right. in your plan. 
Right. Yeah, I'm always curious where like these ideas come from that can generate tens of millions of dollars. Because everyone out there, every indie hacker is like, what unsolved problem is there where I can make a dent? And I think approaching this from the mindset of like a typical consumer, I'm like, transferring money is easy. I just open my wallet, take out a bill, and hand it to someone. Right? Isn't it so easy? But that's a very consumer mindset. And for businesses, like you're talking about, like they have a much more complicated process of like, okay, you know, we're doing market research. If we're asking our customers questions and surveying them, like we got to pay them, but they might live in dozens of different countries. They might accept dozens of different currencies. There's all these forms and taxes and other things. And so it's like one of these like almost hidden problems that the average person will assume is really simple, but it's it's not. And it seems like you guys are just stumbling onto all the ways that it was complex. Yeah, you know, I I don't know that like we could have, you know, you give us like a case that has like all the information about like this market existing and we like immediately crack the idea without having a long iteration cycle and approaching it from like an adjacent market that was more accessible to like us. So we started out in this like consumer gifting market and then we noticed that some people um, that were using our site were using it. Uh, for business to consumer um, incentive payments. And then we realized like B2C payouts is actually this big industry that actually relies on stored value products in a way to like actually transfer value. Well, that's like a lot of hops. And I think that the business that we built benefited from us having a lot of time to like notice those observations because there's no way that 25 year old us could have figured this out. Here's a kind of slightly meta question about sort of like this being a hidden use case in a way. A lot of these these market research firms that want to transfer this value that you're now selling to, did they all start knowing we already know we want to do gift cards and then you are now the gift card provider or are you going and like selling them on gift cards as the thing that sort of will like solve that problem for them? Does that make sense? It's actually the former where like the things that research organizations were doing before Tremendous was um, it, it was really like one of two things. The first is they um, were often like writing checks. Like a lot of what we think about is like we replace checks. They're writing checks to people and checks are, I mean, they're just a contract that has a bank account and routing number printed on it. And you hope that someone doesn't commit fraud, um, but, it, but that, that's what they are. Or they would use Amazon cards or some other like single store value product and run into the issues of like recipient preferences of like, oh, I don't want an Amazon card to give me a prepaid card or Amazon doesn't work here. Or like, can you give me a Walmart card? And suddenly they had an operations person who was spending all their time just managing like inquiries about this. The other place that they would come from is there's some legacy providers that like kind of created access to this, but the technology for those providers was so bad that they couldn't get any of the reporting or like money movement was like a hassle. And so it was something that some of the legacy providers were doing a bad job of servicing, but most people were actually using other substitutes that we happened to have a solution where they were like, oh, wow, like, mm. this is amazing. Like, it just made all my problems go away. Yeah. I also wonder about growth in general. Did you ever run into any plateaus that were hard to get over? Because you're kind of doing like the sales-led process. Where you're calling up companies on the phone. You're like, hey, you guys are doing research. We got the product for you. Did that ever stop working? Did you ever have to like innovate to figure out how to move to the next step? Because I know a lot of people who try to do those types of sales and it doesn't work very well for them. Yeah, it, it was. So we didn't keep doing the sales led strategy over like the entire last four years. The sales led strategy worked pretty early on because like 
Nick, the founder and CEO who can also like design interfaces and like understood business and could just like write code was like, it, it was the equivalent of like, um, whatever Stripe was doing where they were just like set it up for you um, in the early days of like, you know, uh, market research firms, like, can you build this report for us? And like, we'd ship it and they'd be like, oh, wow, let's move all our spend over to Tremendous. It seems great. Um, what eventually ended up happening was, um, and this is something that I think as engineers and builders, we take for granted. When you make a site that's like open for anyone to sign up using, um, it's not like a closed enterprise, like you can't register for it unless you're like a big company. Like anyone can sign up and start sending on Tremendous. Um, we started running ads like pull inbound and we got all of these mid-market companies or large companies even, like uh, I think Google came to us through inbound actually, um, that could just sign up with the product and play with it. And then they would request a demo. And this is like this, um, I think a lot of the new fintech companies like Plaid um, really believe in product-led growth. And that was it was huge for us because we would just bring in traffic, let them experiment with the product, and then they would immediately see the value and want to figure out how they could do this at scale. The rich get richer. It, it worked well too, because you know, for us, with a lot of the players in the space, they were legacy providers. They just didn't have the ability to build this. Like building something that anyone can sign up for is, believe it or not, in the scope of like you know tech, kind of a hard problem. Like it's not something that all the legacy players do. So this is a huge advantage for us. Are there like problems you've uncovered while doing this that like you don't have time to solve, but you think other startups could? Because I know like part of building any company is focus, right? You could do a million different things, uh, but you can't do all of them. Like what what have you seen in this industry? Because I, I think there's a lot of problems where, quite frankly, like you're right, like the incumbents can't really move fast enough to solve them, but like a scrappy team of creative hackers can. You're asking me if there's like any brilliant startup ideas yeah, I, what have should, that what I should... don't have time to work on. <laughs> <laughs> this is the question. You know, I I do think that there's a lot in terms of just like simple primitives for um, fintech companies. Like just really simple example, like one of the sites that I use the most is like a uh, ipdata.co um, and we usually just use it for like fraud detection and geolocation stuff and like uh, I've now implemented this I implemented this at AngelS too to just find like simple APIs that allow people to access information where like uh, the core service is like um, taking in some data it's like a microservice like you put in an IP address and it tells you all the information about it and it gives you some scoring on top and all it is is a simple site with a great API and like there's some like you know, usage-based pricing. But for us, we're like, I, I will pay $200, $500 a month for this. And right, exactly. happy with it. And if you think about what all those primitives are within the fintech ecosystem of like, you know, there's elements of KYC, like there's companies that are trying to build these like all-in-ones, but I think the opportunity for folks that are indie is doing one of those individual things and just doing it incredibly well and having it be simple. That, that's the business that like, you know, MaxMind is another one that, that does like uh, um, fraud services and IP like enrichment. Like Clearbit is another example of like their business is incredibly simple. It's just like I give you data when you make a request. Um, I think those are incredibly interesting businesses. And when they get integrated, like no one wants to rip them out. So what do you want to what do you want to do now? I mean, you're kind of on top of the world. You're talking about okay, you you want to provide more value. You've grown your company. You've got something like what is it like fifty employees now? Yeah. How how are you feeling personally as a founder when you look at like I don't know your career and your goals? Are you like completely absorbed by your business? Are you thinking about next steps? Like how do you how do you basically 
plan a chart a course for your life once you've already achieved like this level of success? This is a philosophical question. Yeah, let's, let's go deep. I try not to let the lows make me feel really low, and I try not to let the highs make me feel really high. Like it's really about being tempered and um, somewhat um, accepting of like what's happening. And I think that we are in a good place as a business. Like when it comes to work, like at where tremendous is going. I have like a few desires. I, I want to build a great culture where all the people who work here feel like they were able to be part of something special. Like that is actually for me more of my personal mission. Um, and, and when you think about how Nick and I are able to divide up responsibilities, he really sort of thinks about like the long-term vision of the company. I really care about the organization and the people we have. Like those that sort of plays to our relative strengths. Um, and I wanted to deliver value for our clients and just build good products. And uh, that's like... You know, it's it's quite different than like the we need to save the world by doing X kind of philosophy, but it's always been the one that's more consistent with what we care about. So like, you know, in terms of like company where we're at, like we just have to hire more people and like maintain our culture and keep delivering value to our users. And we don't really worry about the zeros too much as long as we're making more money than we're spending. Sound like a very loyal company, man. Because there's so many different answers you could give. Like, oh, you know, I like, I like how Elon Musk did it. I'm going to follow that path. All right. I mean, would you? It sounds exhausting to be Elon <laughs> Musk. Like, you, you know, take it, take it um, from Elon Musk himself. <laughs> it sounds like, I, I, I think like being authentic to yourself in the life that you want to build as a, a founder is like, look, you're probably not going to, like, it's, it's really challenging to, to actually make it so that you get that option. But when you do, like, don't try to live someone else's life. Like, right. you know, all that seems fine, but who cares? Like, I, I know what my life is and I don't think it's going to change very much based on how tremendous like ends up doing, but I do care about my relationships with all the people who I bring on and all the coworkers I have and how I spend my day. And I want to have that be like amazing. That sounds so healthy. The idea that your life isn't going to change that much regardless of how your company does. And that the most important thing is relationships. Cause I've been reading like books and essays and stuff on happiness and they all basically say the exact same thing. Happiness mostly comes down to the relationships in your life. And I think people who think that making money is going to, you know, result in some massive change in their life, especially if they're already pretty well off or probably going to be disappointed. Well, cool, Koppel. Thanks for coming on. Um, can I ask you to, to leave us with one piece of uh, advice for fledgling indie hackers out there who maybe don't have an idea yet or who may be struggling through the sort of early stages of getting started? Like what's something that you've encountered that's maybe unique to you that they might not have encountered? Yeah, I'd say give yourself space and time. Like this shit is hard. It took us eight years and like we stopped working on the company and started working on it and bought like it, it was a long journey. And I think in the early days, we didn't give ourselves space to like really try to figure this out. And that was why we did some of the bouncing around that we did. Um, and, you know, like I think about myself 2014 being like, oh, I'm a failure. It's like time to get a job. Like I wasn't a failure. I'm not any different than I am now. Like the card, like, you know, you're, you're going to get a lucky hand or you're not. But if you start startups for long enough, you will be successful um, is like one part of it. And so if you believe that, then yeah. giving yourself time to like not believe that like like the first thing that you start is automatically going to be a home run. Like it's not. You're gonna, It's going to take time and space. So like if you actually give yourself that time and space, you have a much better chance of discovering it. Otherwise, you're going to shut down what might be a promising idea or, you know, in our case, adjacent to a promising idea. I love that. It's almost like the number one hack is not how to build a successful company. It's how to give yourself enough time and space 
to then figure out how to build a successful company. And if you have that time and space, it's just a matter of taking it. Yep. Apokali, thanks a ton for coming on. Um, can you let listeners know where to find more about you online and about Tremendous? Yeah, uh, Tremendous. You can learn more about us at Tremendous.com. And uh, for me, ooh, I, don't, I don't know where to find me online. I actually try to keep a very low online presence. You tweet a little bit. Uh, I, I tweet bit. very little. I increasingly less as, as time same, passes. Same, same. All right. Thanks again for coming on. Later.